Hi, everyone. Good afternoon, ECV. Hey, hey. Um, oh, yes, this thing. Ooh, fancy. I'll just figure it out. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tina Colon-Williams. I am the worship pastor here. Um, I usually am just at the piano singing things, but I'm double duty today um, to teach week three of our Blessing Generation series. It's been a series where we are, I can't tell what direction this goes. Is the black thing in the front? Hey. Um, we've been exploring during this series what scripture has to say about our identity as a multi-generational church. And we've been using generation, not just literal generations, um, but eras or chapters of our community life together. And we've identified four core generations so far. Uh, we got Generation Zero, the forefathers at the New Haven Vineyard, which is a church that our church came from. We got Gen One, the pioneers of the early days of our church plant. Shout out to all the roots. So several of them are Gen One people in there. Um, we have Generation Two, uh, that's those who mostly know, are familiar with Josh as the lead pastor. That's been their experience. And this space as our church home. And then we have Generation 3, which is like the pandemic generation. Those who came during the pandemic or the beginning of it or, or throughout. Um, and so far in this series, it's actually been a really rich time. We've looked at themes of trust and commitment across generational lines. And this week, we're going to be looking at the fun topic of healing broken generational scripts, looking specifically at the story of Esther. Now, the topic of generations, and in this sense, I mean literal generations, is one in society that can sometimes get heated, apparently. I myself am in the category of millennial. I remember being a preteen when Y2K thing was happening and everyone was hoarding like um, canned goods because the world was gonna end because the computers were gonna stop working. I still don't really understand that. Um, and so as it turns out, generations before mine sometimes have big feelings about millennials. Uh, <laughs> And I remember, the, so the Vineyard Movement, you've heard a bit about that in the announcements, the Vineyard Movement, which is the movement of churches I belong to, has historically been a boomer-heavy movement, especially at the senior leadership levels, right? And I remember one time a few years ago being at a Vineyard meeting, it was a, like a national leadership meeting, and it's me and Josh hanging out by a campfire with some boomers and some Gen X people, and we're just casually chatting, and the conversation turns to millennials. And apparently how we don't work hard enough um, so one of the leaders was going on and on about how back in his day, people didn't complain about work-life balance or how difficult it is to work more than 40 hours a week. You know, back in the day, they just hustled without whining about it. Meanwhile, us millennials over here expect things like flexibility and sabbaticals and special rooms in the office to take naps and do yoga and like care about your emotional health, like a bunch of weaklings. So. <laughs> it turns out the internet also has a lot to say about this theme. Apparently, there are a whole bunch of memes out there, this like war between the boomers and the other generations. And so it has like uh, all these memes where younger generations are fighting back in sassy ways. I just have a couple of them here for you. So everyone hates millennials until it's time to convert a PDF into a Word document. <laughs> 
Or, or this one, you probably can't read it, but it's boomers being like, your generation doesn't know how to dress. Um, what, you put those holes in your jeans, you put those there yourself? And then she responds sassily, what, the holes in the ozone layer, you put those there yourself? Ooh. <laughs> so apparently there are a bunch more. There's like uh, uh, a lot of the memes that just have the words, okay, boomer. <laughs> As if to sort of like dismiss the, the wisdom of a prior generation as like judgmental and wrong. Like, oh, you say whatever you want to say about us. Like, okay, boomer. Um, so all this to say, there are narratives that get written about us at a generational level, right? This is just true. There's also generational baggage that we carry. Also true. Sometimes this baggage is of the comical variety. <laughs> I just love this. <laughs> how they dress girls today, this girl looking fabulous, and then how they dress me. <laughs> it's just true. Um, and, or, and sometimes this generational baggage is of the heavier variety. Some of you might recognize this scene from the movie Encanto. This is a particular moment of encounter between Mirabel and her abuela, and there's some generational confrontation about that baggage that we carry. This week, we will be looking at the book of Esther and how Queen Esther chooses to obey God in the face of her own generational baggage, her own generational narratives. Now, we won't have time to read the whole book of Esther word for word, but y'all, you need to read this book. When you go home, like at night, start to finish, I urge you, read the entire book of Esther because it is dramatic. Esther is most definitely 100% the telenovela of the Bible. <laughs> I'm serious. It's serving up spurned lovers, debauchery, revenge, at least three last-minute plot twists that you weren't expecting, social commentary on the ills of racism and sexism, and lots and lots of sex and murder. For the sake of time, allow me to summarize by introducing the key characters of the book of Esther. First, we have King Xerxes. He is a sloppy, narcissistic, drunken mess who negligently runs the Persian kingdom and the city of Susa based on his you know, whims of the moment. Not a very good leader, not a very decent human being. Then we have Queen Vashti. This is Xerxes' spurned ex-wife, okay? She was kicked out of the, the castle after a particularly bad argument with Xerxes. Intro, Esther. Esther... I'm sure none of these people look like this, by the way. <laughs> this is what the internet offers. Esther is a gorgeous Jewish woman who is chosen from among many women as the king's favorite, and she becomes his new wife and queen. She, as you could maybe guess from the title of the book, is the heroine of our story. Then we have Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's uncle, and he becomes her adopted dad. He's a Jewish man and a person of integrity. He isn't royalty by any stretch, but he did save the king's life once from an attempted coup and generally is a good dude in the story. Then we have Haman, the villain. He's a wealthy man with lots of positional power in the government. He hates Mordecai, mostly because Mordecai does not bow down to him in public like everybody else. Um, and by, by extension, he hates all Jewish people. So many of us here perhaps are familiar with the, the kids' book version of the story, the summarized version, right? Queen Esther, on the advice of Mordecai, saves the Jewish people by boldly asking the king to stop genocide against the Jews the end, right? You've heard this story, some version of it? The full story is actually quite a bit deeper, and it doesn't begin with Esther. It begins with Vashti. 
So chapter one of our time together, this idea, the story of Vashti. And our story begins with a party. And it is a particularly epic party. This is a six-month-long party, 180 days, followed by a seven-day dinner, okay? Um, and it's very descriptive as to how this, how this goes, but there, the one key theme is that there is lots and lots and lots of wine at this party. And meanwhile, at this seven-day banquet, Queen Vashti is doing her own thing with the ladies, right? She's got her lady, lady banquet over here. Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women. Um, and then comes this moment of injustice where Queen Vashti falls from grace and a new story gets written for women in the kingdom. King Xerxes is drunk in high spirits from wine, as it says. Um, and he commands his servants to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Vashti's like, no. <laughs> Um, Xerxes wanted to parade her around, right, basically, like an animal in, for the lustful eyes of his friends. And it says that she, he wanted to do this wearing a crown. Some rabbinical traditions interpret this as Xerxes asking her to wear only a crown. Now, that would be a horrific feeling, right, to have your husband ask you to do something like that in front of his drunk friends. Gross. Vashti said no. And she suffered the consequences. The text goes on to describe how this decision sets the stage for a new chapter, basically of intentional misogyny and suppression of women. So <laughs> since it was customary for the, for the king to consult the experts, he speaks with the wise men who understood the times, I roll, what must be done to Queen Vashti? And then their advice is this. If you do nothing, women are just going to do whatever they want. They're not going to listen to their husbands. They're not going to submit. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. So they suggest that he kick Vashti to the curb, make a rule that she can never see him again, um, and then issue an edict for all the land to say that every husband must be ruler of his own household. This is the new normal, right? This is the culture that Queen Esther steps into. Vashti resisted a misogynistic act. And she suffered the consequences. And in this experience of trauma, of an injustice, a new lesson for a generation was written. It is better for women to shut up and submit. If you speak up, you get shunned. And this lesson very quickly became a script, sort of playbook or autopilot for the women who came after Vashti. And the script reads something like, appearance is what matters the most. Hide your true identity. Be silent and submissive, or else. This is where Esther walks into the story. She enters the narrative, not as a bold, genocide-stopping heroine, but as a silent, submissive woman. She is 100% in line with the generational script that is written for her. Okay? After he dumps Vashti, kicks her out, Xerxes sets up a beauty contest for his next queen. I'm sure you've heard about this if you're familiar with the story. Esther enrolls, and it's interesting. She does everything by the book, right? This beauty contest happens. She does the beauty treatments. She eats the special diet. She moves into the harem. And in verse 10, we see here, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. This is important. Mordecai, this is her father, 
told her to be this way. He played the role of a script enforcer in Esther's life. And as the generation that raised her up, he equipped her in the script for a successful Persian woman. And it's a script that's got some baggage. To state the obvious, this beauty pageant is really messed up. Uh, as we keep reading, we see that the judge of the beauty pageant, which is the king, sleeps with each of the contestants one by one and then chooses his favorite. It's awful. But Esther plays the game, and she plays by the rules of the game, and she wins the game. She marries Xerxes and becomes the queen. She wins by following the script to a T. She is silent. She is beautiful. She is submissive in absolutely everything, and she keeps her identity as a Jewish woman, a minority in the kingdom, a total secret. The whole story might seem super different from our modern day context. Like, I have nothing to do with beauty contests and this kind of craziness. But I actually don't think it's that far off. Because of what prior generations have had to suffer all the time, we learn lessons that can become scripts for us. Scripts that were written by trauma before we even got here not by God's good design. Right now, there might be ways where we're unconsciously walking in a generational narrative that has been written by trauma and not freedom. We think it's just life. It's just true. This is just the way things are. If you speak up, you get exiled for Esther. If you show up in your full ethnic identity, you get shunned. There might be tons of scripts running in the background for us right now. We don't even notice them because they're like autopilot. So some questions for us to ponder as we move through this story. What are some lessons that you might have been given by another generation? What are some lessons that maybe you've inadvertently passed on to those around you? And importantly, are there any places where those lessons are controlling the narrative, where they've become scripts, autopilots? So one script that I've had to navigate from my own life that I can think of is the, I'll call it the highly educated and upwardly mobile script. <laughs> Both of my parents grew up in things I never had to deal with. They were born and raised on the island of Puerto Rico. It's an island that can't belong to a nation of its own and can't fully belong to the nation that owns it, the US. Um, day in, day out, my parents both grew up living in poverty actual poverty and scarcity, not just the imagined or potential kind that could come in the future. Um, they lived through alcoholism in their families, through disappearing and sometimes violent and actually dangerous fathers in their homes. So as they both grew up in this place that was sort of an in-between belonging nationally, unstable and unsafe in their homes, um, in that context, in their lived experience, they learned that the ticket to a changed life was education. Escaping home to study turned into excellent grades, which turned into full scholarships, which eventually turned into graduate degrees and two very successful careers in the medical field. And a lesson was learned and passed on to me. Not a bad lesson. Education and career are essential for any future. They are the antidote to poverty and marginalization. But the underside of that lesson was also passed on totally unintentionally. Without education and career, you are no one, and you will not be safe, and you will not belong. So you better prioritize that. These lessons we learn from our forefathers can easily become scripts. If you're not careful, 
They can be scripts that dictate your life. As I grew, I fell in line exactly with that script that was written for me before I even got here. Always advance. If you're not advancing, you'll be left behind. You'll be nothing. That mindset was just in the water before I ever even left my childhood home for college. It was in me without me having to live through the different traumas and injustices that created it, right? This, this particular upwardly mobile education script is a particularly common one. It's not original. Um, it's common especially for upwardly mobile immigrant parents. Maybe some of you can relate to these parents. Um, but there are a million and one generation of scripts out there to choose from. Maybe it's a distorted lesson uh, about hard work. You need to work without ceasing in order to secure your future and to secure an identity. It's another common immigrant narrative that people inherit. Maybe it's a distorted lesson that you will, al you will always have to work twice as hard for half as much. Maybe it's a distorted lesson that because of your ancestors' role in oppression and bloodshed in this country's past, you will always have a debt to society that you can only pay off with good deeds and perfect wokeness. We have different distorted scripts for different aspects of our identity. Sometimes they compete for control over our future. Whatever the script, especially if it's been written by trauma and injustice, bad things happen when the script takes the driver's seat of our decisions. Does that make sense? Okay. Our scripts have a cost. We'll keep reading into the story to see what happens with Esther. I've called it collaborative intergenerational resistance. I like that. <laughs> in our story, uh, the story of Esther, we see in a very graphic way how our scripts have a cost. The patriarchal ego that wrote Esther's script as a Persian woman or a woman in Persia, gets way out of hand and becomes deadly. So I'll summarize, there's a lot of scripture here, but Haman, bad guy, villain, remember him, makes a plot to murder all the Jews. Remember, he's a really wealthy man. He really hated that Mordecai didn't bow to him in the street. He can't handle it. And so he convinces King Xerxes to roll out a state-sanctioned genocide against every single person of Jewish descent. And it is Absolutely horrific. I mean, they pick a day. And so they sent an order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews on a single day, 13th day of the 12th month. It's a one-day massacre and total ethnic cleansing. It's awful. And this is where Mordecai comes back into the story. Remember, Mordecai originally had that hat of the script enforcer for Esther. He said, keep quiet, don't tell anybody you're Jewish, play the rules, you'll be fine. He confronts Esther. He tells her to go to the king and make him change the law. This is a total 180 on his prior advice. And at first, Esther says, heck no, it's not an option. Remember, the context is different for Mordecai than Esther. He's male, she's the one who's female. He lives outside the castle wall. She has to be in bed with this man uh, as the queen. Mordecai, as someone of a different generation who sits in a different vantage point, is uniquely positioned, though, to speak up here and call Esther out of her script. This is where we introduce some of the most famous words from the book of Esther. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, those words being, heck no, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther's response is powerful. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, 
Gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Her first response is to call for fasting. Right? This is critical. She seeks the Lord because she is terrified. She doesn't know how to do this. It is the opposite of everything she's ever learned how to do. Every woman she's ever known has done things differently than this. And she knows that the generational, breaking the generational script could come at a severe cost for her. The law of the day was very clear. That, if she, that she could be thrown out or even killed for asking the king anything without his advance permission, much less trying to reverse a law that has already been decreed. So to follow Mordecai's advice here would be to break the narrative written for her as a woman of minority descent in Persia and as the wife of a powerful man. It's the opposite, right? Instead of being silent, she would have to speak up. Instead of keeping her identity a secret, she would have to put it front and center. Instead of being submissive, she would have to demand change. And I think her example demands or invites us to ask some questions of ourselves. Where might God be inviting us to step out of our generational scripts and into a new narrative? Like Mordecai, where have we been silent instead of speaking up against a distorted generational script? Sometimes we see it, right? We can see it, but we don't want to say anything. Oh, it's not our place. Or, oh, I'm not in the castle. That would be too difficult. Um, but Mordecai, had he kept silent, a lot of people would have died, right? And then the last question for reflection, are we called, like Mordecai and Esther, to be generational script breakers? Now, I will just go ahead and summarize the end of the story because it gets literally crazy. Um, she does it. She goes to the king. Tell, uh, well, she has two banquets. There's like one banquet, and then she asks for another banquet at the first banquet. I think she kind of chickened out. And then in between, Haman sets up like a spike to impale Mordecai in the morning. It's, it gets violent. Anyway, she has another banquet, and then she tells the king everything. I'm a Jewish woman. You are trying to massacre my people. This guy, he's, he's responsible. Um, she does it, and history is changed. She ends up, long story short, Mordecai, or Haman ends up, getting the sentence that Mordecai was going to get. Mordecai gets Haman's job, and together, Esther and Mordecai rewrite the law, reverse the massacre, protect the people, um, and everyone is saved. Um, you really should go home and read it. Like, <laughs> it's absolutely insane, all the twists and turns. There's one point where the king gets insomnia, and like somebody reads the history of his kingdom, and they're like, oh, yeah, I remember Mordecai. He saved your life once. And he was like, oh, yeah, I should honor him. Hey, man, what do I do to honor somebody? He's like, ooh, do this thick parade thing. And then uh, he's like, yeah, go do that for Mordecai. And so then, like, Haman's, like, dragging Mordecai around. Anyway, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> so, uh, church family, what if we could be Esther's? or Mordecai's. Um, what if we could be Mirabelle's? Back to Encanto. <laughs> if you haven't seen Encanto, you just need to watch it. It'll all make sense. Instead of defaulting to the scripts that we've been handed, what if we paid attention to the damage that they are causing and called one another to rewrite the narrative? So in recent years, um, one last story and then we'll, we'll transition. In recent years, I experienced personally a powerful Mordecai Esther call-out moment here at ECV. 
a small group of single black women in the church set up a meeting with me and Josh, who had been lead pastor for a while at that point. And in that meeting, these three ladies called us out. They shared honestly and vulnerably about what it was like, what it had felt like for them recently to be at our church. And they described things. They described a lack of mentorship, an emphasis on service and using talents to do work for the church, even when that came at a cost to themselves. They described a loneliness and a lack of deep community for their demographic. And they felt they were being expected basically to show up and serve at church and to look after one another without anyone looking after them. Essentially, they were telling us that this script that they had been handed as younger women of color in our church had become a curse instead of a blessing, and it needed to change. This was a call-out moment for me. In the ECV family system, I guess I'm generation 0.5. I was part of New Haven Vineyard before ECV was ever born. I volunteered with the youth ministry when I was just a sophomore in college. And when ECV got started, I hung around from the beginning, pretty quickly got to serving on the worship team, and not too long after that, took leadership over the whole worship ministry. And as a woman of color myself, with a bit longer of an institutional history than the folks who are challenging us in this conversation, I had learned a version of that same script that the women were telling me about. I came into the church when the church was just a baby, right? So of course you just show up and serve. It's all hands on deck. You do what you got to do. And in that era, there was no one who was paid any money by the church to thoughtfully think through structures or mentorship or ways to cultivate culturally specific community. Um, you just mentor each other and you hope to figure it out. Uh, I led stuff for a while without any structures or mentorship or care plans. And any older ladies in the church were parenting brand new kids while also like pastoring the whole church. So of course there wasn't a culture of intergenerational mentorship. And of course it's a little lonely. For many years I was one of the only Latino, Latinas or any kind of Latino at the, in the entire church. <laughs> you just um, suck it up and you find community where you can. Um, but without even intending it, these patterns, just realities, this is just the way it is, became norms, which then became scripts that got passed on. And they weren't always helpful. So when I was confronted with this challenge from these beloved ladies in our church, I knew I had two choices. Right? On the one hand, it could be easy to write off the complaints as, well, that's just how life works. Basically, the reverse of the OK Boomer meme. <laughs> Back in my day, us young ladies just served without mentors and without whining, so suck it up. Or <laughs> the alternative to truly listen without defensiveness and maybe see that these scripts aren't God's best design for us. They have a cost to bring back Encanto once again, perhaps they are cracks in our casita. And if we don't start paying attention and fixing them, they could bring the whole thing down. So thankfully, we did listen. Um, and though the repair work can be slow and clunky, good work has been happening to undo some of those generational scripts. After that conversation, it was, a, it was a turning point for us. We started a women's group for the first time. We called upon some Gen 1 ECV ladies to intentionally step up to serve as mentors. Uh, now we do triads. Try, I've tried on new practices of um, encouraging people to just hang around for a while before jumping into service like it used to be. The work is definitely ongoing. And full disclosure, this kind of intergenerational script-breaking work sort of sucks. 
Sometimes when you point out the cracks, it feels like they get bigger, right? Um, and things get less stable. Conflict isn't fun. Course correcting the way things have been done for years isn't fun. It's scary. But it's healing, and it builds our trust in our God who has been here from generation to generation. And this God is here and is up to good, good things that we can't even imagine for our future. So ECV fam, I know we have some scripts in the room, plenty of them. Scripts in our personal lives and some in-house church scripts, maybe about how we find our place in community, whatever our specific demographic is, or how we negotiate belonging, how we serve and don't serve, how we're asked to serve or not asked to serve. Maybe the scripts in how we show up and stuff our unresolved interpersonal conflict or withdraw to avoid dealing with things altogether. Whatever the script is, they're in the water. And most of them started forming in painful situations before we even got here. Uh, sometimes a helpful first step could be to get curious about where do these scripts come from, right? Maybe was there a trauma or injustice that informed it? And what parts of these scripts are distorted lessons that actually need to be set aside? Sometimes we need someone from a different generation to point it out and help us course correct, like Esther needed Mordecai. Now, I will just name, this can be a very vulnerable thing to do. And very hard not to be defensive if any word, corrective word, comes from another generation. We get kind of, um, it requires so much grace on both sides, but it's worthwhile because it has the, pattern to, the potential to stop patterns of generational brokenness and trauma from repeating themselves forever. So let's pay attention to what these scripts are for us and where they might be leading us more than the voice of Jesus, our good shepherd. Because Jesus stands at the ready to be the Mordecai to our Esther if we are willing to listen and to call us out of our tired scripts into a new narrative. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And the rest of you here, I actually invite you to stand. And Heidi, you can come up for prayer ministries too. Um, I'm going to ask you guys, some of you, to be brave in a second. Because I'm going to ask, invite some of you to identify yourself essentially before the community and take a step of faith to receive specific prayer. Okay? I've always found that, like, when we move towards God in courage, even if it's a small step, a small way, he always meets us there. And so I think sometimes just the simple act of leaving your seat to stand up can just be a posture of readiness to receive something and to step into something different, right? So I have two invitations uh, before we share some more words that folks have gotten, move into a time of worship and prayer ministry. First invitation is for some, those of us who... Um, maybe have been sitting in judgment against another generation. And I use the term generation loosely. It might be a specific demographic or particularly a demographic within our church that's different from you. And maybe you see the distortions in their particular script, but instead of speaking up with words of challenge and encouragement, maybe the default has been to sit in silence or maybe even judgment. If you identify with that or resonate with that in any way, I think Jesus might be inviting you in full submission and partnership to him to take on the role of Mordecai. So if that's you, with no shame, would you raise your hand? And when the music starts, will one of you, will, will you go to one of our trained prayer ministers and receive ministry? Just prayer to see how God might bless that. The other invitation is for those of us who have been tied to a script that was written by an injustice or trauma. 
Maybe we've been feeling the restrictions of that script in a particular way lately. Maybe we're super aware of the personal cost that it would take to do things differently than they've been. And if that's you, I think Jesus might be calling you to seek his faith, face about what faithfulness to God looks like more than faithfulness to your scripts. This is a call to courage, to do things differently than the narrative written out for you, a call to the role of Esther. So if that's you, with no shame, would you raise your hand? Thank you. And when the music starts, I invite you to go to one of our trade and prayer ministers and receive prayer. You can remain in this posture. Heidi's going to share some more words for us. <laughs> 